just under a year ago as we are as we resumed public worship after the the second lockdown uh, i began a sermon series on the book of nehemiah it's a book which is all about rebuilding uh, something that that was and still is relevant for the church in the uk and around the world in the wake of covid uh, and something uh, that's relevant for us uh, as a congregation as well as we uh, by god's grace uh, seek to see a rebuilding here and rebuilding is a big theme in the bible it's not just limited to the book of Nehemiah, that, that one book we looked at, but there's also the book of, of Ezra, uh, the scribe who worked both before Nehemiah and alongside Nehemiah. Uh, and then there are the, the prophets who encouraged the work of rebuilding Haggai, Zechariah and Malachi. Uh, and it's to one of those prophets, Zechariah, that we're turning to this morning. And my goal this morning is the same as Zachariah's goal was 500 years before the time of Christ. And that is to encourage you as God's people in the work of rebuilding. Uh, My goal is to encourage you in your work for God. We're going to focus this morning mostly on one verse in the middle of the chapter, uh, but then also on the closing few verses and if there's one verse to to memorize today to meditate on in the week ahead it's verse 15 it's a, a glorious verse so again i have purposed in these days to bring good to jerusalem and to the house of judah fear not Zechariah speaks against a backdrop of God's anger with his people in sending them into exile, which we see in verse 14. But he also speaks against a backdrop of rebuilding work that had started, but then stalled. The altar in Jerusalem had been rebuilt by Zerubbabel, but then the work had stopped. And it took the encouragement of Haggai and Zechariah to get the people going again. And this chapter is full of encouragement to do just that, uh, to get going again in our work for God. For example, verse 9, let your hands be strong. Or or the end of, of the verse that we're focusing most of our attention on today, verse 15, it ends with those words, fear not. Uh, which it said are the most frequent command in the Bible, fear not. And Zechariah encourages the people in the work with the promise of both present and future blessing. In verse 15, it's present blessing that's in view. He says, So again I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and the house of Judah. In verse 23, it's future blessing. In those, in those days, ten men from the nation of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. And God does the same for us. He encourage us, encourages us in our work with promises of both present and future blessing. 
And in fact, much of the blessing that was still future for the church of Zachariah's day is something that is a present reality for the church in our day. And we're going to look at these promises of present and future blessing in this chapter under two headings this morning. Spending most of our time on the first one. But then asking as we close how we should respond to the goodness that God has promised to pour out on us. So there's three main sections this morning but spending most of our time in the first one which is be encouraged by the promises of present blessing. I want to encourage you this morning and the first reason to be encouraged is be encouraged by the promises of present blessing. Perhaps a question that was on your mind as we read through this chapter was, well, can we take some of these promises here and apply them to ourselves? Take verse 15 in particular. Wouldn't it be be lovely this morning to be able to take this verse as God's word to us? So again, I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. It would be lovely to be able to apply those words to ourselves and the time in which we're living. But can we? One reason we might wonder about that is who the promise is addressed to. After all, it it says it's addressed to the house of, of Jerusalem and Judah. Now, Boys and girls, you may know that there's still a city in the world uh, called Jerusalem. But is that what we're meant to think about when we read and when we sing about God's promises for Jerusalem? Well, no, we're we're not just to think about about that city as it was in the past, uh, but we're to think about the church and sometimes the church here on earth and at other times the church in heaven. Because that's what Jerusalem was to be a picture of. Jerusalem in the Old Testament was a picture of the New Testament church and ultimately a picture of heaven itself. And of course the two things aren't completely separate, the church on earth and the church in heaven People talk about the church militant, that's the church on earth, the church still uh, fighting and and struggling against sin, the church uh, taking the gospel out to the nations, Uh, and then the church triumphant, the church uh, in heaven glorified, so there's a church militant and the church triumphant, but but there's one church. The word Jerusalem is used at the end of the Bible to describe the church in heaven, The Apostle John writes, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It's described as the the bride, the wife of the Lamb, with its foundations having on it the names of the twelve apostles. Uh, So the word Jerusalem is used in the Bible for more than just the ancient city of Jerusalem. It's used clearly there in Revelation to describe the church in heaven. But the word Jerusalem is also used in Hebrews chapter 12 to describe our experience of the church on earth. That even while we are still on earth, 
What we come to when we worship is the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And yes, it is the heavenly Jerusalem, but the amazing thing about that chapter is that that's saying that that is what we experience now each time we meet together. As a, to put that all together, when we read of God's promises to Judah and Jerusalem, we can apply that both to geographical Judah and Jerusalem in 500 BC, but also to the Church of Christ in every age. And so God is telling us here that he has planned to do good to his church. This is his promise, not simply just to do good to to those ancient places, but to do good to his church. Just as the Lord Jesus himself promises, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we can be confident this morning that God's plan for this branch of the church, as as is his plan for all branches of his church, is to do us good. God wants to do us good this morning. But perhaps that leads to another question. Perhaps you're wondering how this ties in with verse 14. You don't need me to tell you this morning that there are many who plan to bring evil on the church. Whereas God in verse 15 promises to bring good on the church, there are many who want to do the opposite. And yet that's not actually the contrast that this passage is making. The contrast between verses 14 and 15 isn't between Satan purposing to do evil to the church and God promising to do good to the church. But rather the contrast is between God purposing to do good to the church in the present and God in the past having purposed to bring disaster on his people. In fact, the word disaster could be translated as evil, as some versions have it. And so are we even justified today in focusing on verse 15 rather than verse 14? Why why should we pick verse 15 with God's promises to do good to his people rather than verse 14 with his, his record of his bringing disaster on them? Well, certainly in light of verse 14, we can't say that God will never purpose to bring disaster on his professed people. If we persistently turn away from him like Judah before the exile, if we persistently refuse to listen to him, then we should expect disaster. Uh, Even in our our individual lives, our, our personal lives, we can't just say, well, well, yes, I believe in Jesus and then live our lives in a totally uh, different way from what he says with, with uh, our priorities upside down and not expect disaster. But what we can say for sure this morning is that doing good to his people is what God delights to do. Isaiah describes judgment as God's strange deed as his alien work. But we're told in Lamentations that God does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. God is not a God who is 
reluctant to do good to his people. He's not a God who, who we have to try and, and twist his arm for him to do good to us. Judgment is his strange work. And in fact, even his acts of judgment are for the ultimate good of his people. Even if he does bring a disaster on our own lives because of our disobedience, it is for our ultimate good. But I wonder this morning, do you struggle to believe in a God who wants to do you good? About a year ago, I read a biography of the author Thomas Hardy. And it has been said of Hardy that he remained enough of a Christian to believe that purpose courses through the universe. But not enough of a Christian to believe that that purpose was good. So he he remained enough of a Christian to believe that there was purpose in the universe. but, But not enough of a Christian to believe that that purpose was good. And I wonder, is that where anyone listening this morning finds themselves? You absolutely believe in the sovereignty of God. Uh, you, you have no doubt that, that he is in control of all things. But maybe it, it's, it's turned into something more like fatalism for you. Because you struggle to believe that God's purposes are good. Maybe you believe it in theory, but in practice you have your doubts. Well, if so, let God's word wash over you this morning. God delights to do good to his people. So again, I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. This is what God keeps coming back to. Now, you might think that this is a truth that we can take for granted that God delights to, to do good to his people. Of course, of course he does. But it's one that we easily forget. And it's perhaps a truth that we're not reminded of as often as we really need to be. I've mentioned this before, but I think about it quite a lot. Back in 2019, Sinclair Ferguson... Uh, who you, you may have come across some of his books he was asked to preach a sermon at a church in Aberdeen on the goodness of God actually the church we were at as a family last week he was asked to preach there on the, the topic the goodness of God and this is how he started his sermon he said I've been preaching for 55 years and I have never once in those 55 years ever ever been asked to preach on the goodness of God. Isn't that amazing? No one had ever asked him, come and tell us about the goodness of God. But what does our catechism tell us? It tells us that God is a spirit, infinite, eternal and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness and truth. And so to to know God rightly and to speak about God rightly to others involves knowing and speaking about the goodness of God. 
And where do we see that goodness most clearly? Well, we see it in, in Christ and in the Father's giving of the Son for us. We see God's goodness in the person of Jesus Christ, out of whose life and lips goodness flowed. What do, does a truly good life look like? Well, look at Jesus Christ, the one who went about doing good. And the one who, whose greatest act of goodness meant going to the cross. The one who, who came to the very city from which Zechariah penned this prophecy to give up his life for his people. To build the temple of the Lord, not with bricks, but with his blood. Think of the, the goodness of the Father in the gift of his Son. And the world around us needs to hear about the goodness of God. Perhaps we think that all some people need to hear about is the wrath and justice of God. And if they can understand that, well then we'll start talking to them about the goodness of God. But what is it that Paul says in Romans is meant to lead us to repentance? It says the kindness of God. It's God's kindness that's meant to lead us to repentance. What is it that is meant to stop us from sinning? Is it just preaching the law? Well, listen to the Puritan Richard Sibbs. We should be so far from evil because Christ is so good that these coals of love should melt us. We should be so far from evil because Christ is so good that these coals of love should melt us. Perhaps there's someone listening this morning and you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus Christ. And if that remains the case, and if one day you end up in hell, well, you will have to go there, not just spurning the holiness of God, but also spurning the goodness of God. In order to end up in hell, you'll have to throw the goodness of God back in his face. Both his goodness in making and preserving you, Psalm 145 says the Lord is good to all uh, without exception. As we sometimes sing, good unto all men is the Lord. Uh, that's true of believers, it's true of unbelievers. But God has been especially good to you this morning in giving you opportunities to hear the gospel preached. Perhaps today you've stumbled across this video and it's the first time in your life. Perhaps today it might be for the last time in your life. But you're hearing the gospel preached. You're hearing the message that it is in this way that God loved the world. That he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So firstly, this morning, that's, that's our main point. Be encouraged by the promises of present blessing. They're, they're not promises uh, that were just for, for ancient places uh, a long time ago, but they are promises 
for us today. Be encouraged by promises of present blessing. But then secondly this morning, be encouraged because of the days in which we're living. Be encouraged because of the days in which we're living. Now perhaps you don't see the reasons or the days in which we're living as a reason for encouragement. And it would be easy to look around us and see the days in which we're living as reasons for discouragement. But biblically speaking, what are the days in which we're living? Biblically speaking, these are the days after Pentecost. They're the days after the Holy Spirit has been given. They're the days which in the words of verses 18 and 19 here, fasting has begun to turn into feasting. And they're the days in the words of verse 20 to the end in which the gospel has gone out to all nations. In verse 22 you have many peoples and strong nations coming to seek the Lord in Jerusalem. And what's that a picture of? Well, it's a picture of the gospel going to the Gentiles. It's a picture that we today are part of the fulfillment of. Ours is a day when, according to the ratio of the last verse in the chapter, Jewish believers are outnumbered 10 to 1 by Gentile believers. Yes, there is a a not yet element to all of this. Uh, We don't fully see all this, but there is already a a very strong, already element to it. Verse 23, that phrase, nations of every tongue, does it not point us forward to Pentecost? And ultimately to the great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And it all flows from God's promise to Abraham. Uh, that promise to, to Abraham uh, which, which just flows on through the rest of the Bible and explains everything else that happens. That's a promise that verse 13 is referring to when it says, So will I save you and you shall be a blessing. Do those words sound familiar? And you shall be a blessing. Because that's what God promised Abraham. In you and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That's what God's people have been singing about for 3,000 years. God be gracious to us and bless us. Why? That your way may be known on earth. You're saving power among all nations. And in light of that... Are we as God's people in these days, these days in which the Spirit has been given and the Gospel is going out to all the nations of the earth, are we as God's people in these days going going to sit on our hands and, and bemoan how hard we have it? When the very reason we've been saved is to declare the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Are we going to to grumble and complain about our circumstances when we have a commission to be a blessing to the nations, including the nation of Scotland and the thousands of people around us who have never heard the gospel? 
Uh, someone has put it. It's a bit of a longer quote, but it's worth sharing. The covenant with Abraham was always intended to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. Ever since Pentecost, Christ has been gathering his people through the witness of the Spirit as the word is proclaimed by the church across the world. And here's the key part. It is therefore inconsistent and unbiblical for churches with reformed convictions to be satisfied with self-preservation and not see winning disciples from the unbelieving nations in which they are located as a high priority. It is inconsistent and unbiblical for reformed churches to be satisfied with self-preservation rather than seeing winning disciples as a priority. So, rebuilding, yes, but also expansion. Expansion. Perish the thought of reformed self-preservation. God's vision is far bigger than ours often is. And this side of Pentecost, we are living at a time when that vision has already become a reality beyond what any believer living at or even around that time could have got their head around. Verse 6. If it is marvellous in the sight of the remnant of this people in these days, should it also be marvellous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. God is telling them that he is going to do things for them that they're not even going to believe. Do we believe that we have a God who is able to do more than we can ask or think? Verse 12, the vine shall give its fruit and the ground shall give its produce and the heavens shall give their due. And so be encouraged, not in spite of the days in which we're living, but be encouraged because of the days in which we're living. We need to think biblically about the days in which we're living. And on a biblical timescale, we're living in the days that the Spirit has been poured out and the gospel is going to the nations. But then just as we close, how are we to respond to God's goodness to us? How are we to respond to the blessing that God promises to pour out on us? Well, we have the answer in verses 16 and 17. These are the things that you shall do. Verse 16 begins. Not in order to gain God's blessing, but in joyful response to it. And there's all the difference in the world between those two things, aren't there? Uh, whether we're doing things because we're doing them hoping that God will bless us, or whether we're doing them in joyful response to how God has blessed us. These are the things you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For these things I hate, declares the Lord. And did you notice that phrase that occurs in both of those verses? One another. Uh, one another. 
That's a phrase that occurs 50 times in the New Testament as a command about how we as Christians should relate to each other. Love one another, show hospitality to one another, build one another up, be at peace with one another, instruct one another, encourage one another. They're things which are are not new concepts to you as a, a congregation. And not just because I once preached a sermon on a sermon series on some of them, but because I see many of you living these things out. And that is a truly a tremendous thing. Because sadly many of these commands are forgotten, even in Reformed churches. Churches may have Orthodox doctrine, their worship may be by the book, but the responsibilities of members to one another aren't emphasised or modelled. In fact, these are commands which only make sense when we see the church not as an isolated collection of individuals, but as a family, as the household of God, with God as our Father, the Lord Jesus as our elder brother, and our fellow Christians as our brothers and sisters. Look at verses 4 and 5 of our chapter. Old people and young people, all part of the same body. A joyful family atmosphere. Yes, in one sense that pictures heaven, but the church is also to be a preview of what heaven is like. Young and old, interacting together, all part of the one body. Living out these one another's. And I'm glad that today I don't have to say start doing these things. But instead I can say keep on doing these things. Keep on doing them. The closing verses of our chapter describe people coming to believers. And saying as in the the last words of the chapter. Let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. But that's just not going to happen if our lives are no different from theirs. If our lives are self-centered, inward-focused, marked by pettiness, negativity, bitterness, they're not going to see anything attractive about us. They're not going to see any evidence that God is with us. They're not going to see any evidence that the God we talk about is actually real. And this is the hard bit, isn't it? As one commentator says, to continue to live lives of truth and justice when the temple was completed would, if anything, be an even greater challenge. Building the temple is one thing. You you can make a massive effort, you can do it. But living lives of truth and justice ongoing, that's the challenge. But only by living this way would the people continue to be blessed and be the blessing to others that God intended them to be. And so, by God's grace, we seek to be transformed more and more into the image of Christ by beholding him in his word and by living out the one another's that by doing so we would bear much fruit to the Father's glory, and that his way may be known on earth, his saving power to all nations. Amen.